Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I've been around security for the last 20 years, and I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I always intrigued to learn how companies start. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own companies. This podcast is also affiliated to the Security Architecture Podcast. And I have a pleasure today to talk to Sharon from Bastion Zero about her journey and what she did. Sharon, shalom and welcome. Please tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Sharon Goldberg. I am the CEO and one of the founders of Bastion Zero. My story is basically, I started out as an InfoSec researcher. I actually did a PhD in cryptography. I became a professor, was a professor at Boston University for seven years, got my tenure there, wrote a bunch of papers, worked with the ITF, did a whole bunch of security research things, and then decided I needed a break from academia, started my own company. And here I am today as the CEO and co-founder of Bastion Zero. This is an interesting story because majority of people worked somewhere and then moved to open their own company. You went from the different way from a university, and this background is quite interesting, I am wondering, and this is we're going to jump in right away to the motivation, like what actually happened? Like why this particular company? Maybe you can share for a minute, like what the company does. We will understand the topic as well. So I should start with what the company is. And then my story is like a long and winding road. I've also been in security for almost 20 years, I guess, 18 years now. But my story is not very typical of startup CEOs, although it isn't that atypical of computer science professors. There are a decent number of computer science professors that do what I'm doing or some version of it. It's just not that many of them end up as like the founder CEO in the founder CEO role. There's a few of us, but not that many. So, you know, Bastion Zero, it's a platform for passwordless access to servers, containers, clusters, and databases. So we are not an IDP. We actually tie in with your identity provider to replace your VPNs and provide your developers with zero trust access to your infrastructure. And we call our solution true zero trust. And what do I mean by that? It's zero trust in terms of you do not need to trust your developers to hold keys, to hold credentials, to have unfettered access. But also, and this is what makes us unique in the market, that you actually don't need to trust our platform with all your keys and all your access to your infrastructure. So my background is in cryptography, my co-founder as well. And what we've done is we've used cryptography to build a system that provides access to infrastructure where the system itself actually does not have access to your infrastructure. So if we get compromised, your infrastructure will not be compromised. And the reason for this is because we pair with your identity provider and access needs to be granted by both of us. And so unless you both compromise our system and the identity provider, you can't get into the system. We call this multi-root, zero trust, two roots of trust us and the identity provider. So basically we're solving problems around access, compliance, security, least privilege, just-in-time access, but we're doing it in a pretty unique way where we're taking the zero trust paradigm and we're extending it not only to the end users, to the engineers and to the end hosts, but also to our platform itself. And I'll talk more about how we came to that, but that is like very on brand for what I've been doing in the last 10 years. This is a great story and I think it's definitely a problem we're all trying to solve in a way or we don't know we need to solve it sometimes because we don't know how important is the problem. Most people don't think about the problem this way. So that's what's been really interesting about this company is like getting people to realize like when they're buying a security tool, the security tool itself can actually increase attack surface for them. 
your vendors are not going to tell you that, right? They don't want you to think about that, but that's really what we're saying. Our message is buy our tool and we will also not increase your attack surface from the tool itself. The tool itself is not going to be a point of compromise for you. And an interesting point, even so we're not supposed to talk about technology a lot, we'll talk about it a bit. Only right now I see companies asking the vendors about their security, about their development, about what they do, about their SOC 2 compliance. And unfortunately, sometimes the only response I see from vendor, we are software compliant. It's like, yes, it's great, but it's not enough. This is a good start and I'm happy you did this. Yeah, it's a good topic and it's important to understand that what I am doing is also going to be great. We do it with cars. We say cars are fast and amazingly great, but you also provide how secure they are. Not going to kill you while you drive there. So I think with the vendors, it's also important that we do have a good product, but we're not going to jeopardize something else in the environment. Exactly. It's so interesting. Like we get that too. Are you SOC 2 compliant? We are SOC 2 compliant. We have been for two years. That's great. But the security of our platform doesn't stem only from the SOC 2 compliance. It stems from the fact that our platform doesn't have the passwords to your databases, the passwords to your clusters, the passwords to your root keys, to your servers, SSH keys, VPN keys. We don't hold any of that. The whole effort that we've done and all the cryptography that we've built is to allow the tool to allow access, but without actually having the tool holding all these keys and credentials, because when a tool holds keys and credentials, it is a security risk. And think about, for example, Circle CI. The way it works is you put all your credentials in Circle CI and it will run deploys for you into your environments. Great. What happened? Circle CI gets breached and all those credentials get stolen because they're valuable and they're all sitting there in one place. So we really, my co-founder and I were both with a cryptography background, really did not want to build a tool that had that structure. And we'd been doing this in academia together for many years. My co-founder, Ethan Heilman, and I have been working together since 2012, 2013, did a whole line of research on like, how do you build systems where there's not what we call a single point of compromise? In other words, like one entity that controls everything, that if you hack that entity, you own the entire system. And that's like the dirty secret of a lot of security systems and a lot of cryptography is that there's like the root key to something or the root of trust somewhere. And if you compromise that root of trust, you can compromise the whole system. And so I've been for the last 10 years, like thinking, how do you build systems that don't have a single point of compromise and a single root of trust, but still work in reality in real life and people can actually use them and not just like in a theoretical world and theoretical academic world. It's hard to believe that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, people used to put credentials in API key and API keys inside the code. But then now people... Yeah, so I feel like it might be that for this company, like we might be a little bit early for people. There are other industries where what I'm saying is just baseline, right? So I hate to say the word, but in the blockchain industry, right, you will (laughs) never find a modern system and you can say whatever you want about them, but technologists in that industry will never build you a system, right? And or like a crypto wallet where all the keys are like sitting on your phone or all the keys are sitting in their cloud, they split them, right? They split them between the phone and the cloud or between two clouds or all of the modern products don't have this structure of the keys are just sitting there in one place, right? And that's the baseline. But in this industry, in the cloud security industry and generally the infosec industry around infrastructure, we're pretty comfortable with putting all our keys in one place. And we're happy because they're there but not in the code. So they're not readable off the GitHub repo. So we're happy, but they're actually sitting there potentially in one place where they could all be targeted. So that's what we're really avoiding with this product. That's what our whole ethos is at Bastion Zero is like true zero trust. Zero trust means zero trust in the users, but also zero trust in the platform. So let's dive in. So what happened and how you got to this idea? And also maybe later on talk about why partner, why not by yourself? 
Okay, well, there's a whole long story here. So why this idea? So the story kind of starts like in 2011. Evgeny, do you remember the DigiNotar compromise in TLS? Do you remember that? I remember something. I don't remember all the details. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So in 2011, there was a Dutch certificate authority that was hacked and they stole their CA signing key for TLS, right? And then basically the entire security of the web like collapsed. Like we realized all of a sudden, it's like <laughs> we discovered America. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, wait a minute. We have this huge vulnerability in HTTPS and TLS, which is that there are these things called certificate authorities and they have the power to issue certificates and the validity and correctness of certificates is what's determines the entire security of the web and all of e-commerce and everything we do in a browser. And the certificate authority in the Netherlands was hacked, their signing key was stolen and the adversary started issuing fraudulent certificates that it was using to intercept traffic sent to Google. So basically they hacked Google by hacking the certificate authority, which was in the Netherlands which was meant to be a certificate authority for like local Dutch things like the RMV there, the motor vehicle registry and places like that. So this really freaked out the security community in 2011. 2011 was a year after I became a professor. So it was very formative time for me where I was like finding my identity as a researcher and the whole community freaked out. And then two years later, there was Snowden, right? And everybody was like, whoa, like all of our infrastructure is way less secure than we thought. And our threat models are way more aggressive than we thought. And so we realized there were nation states attacks. I don't know what world I was living in 2013, but when I saw the Snowden breaches, I was also like, whoa, you know, our threat models are way more aggressive than we thought. Because I remember up until that point, I was writing these papers where people would push back on the threat models we were using. We were saying it's too aggressive. There aren't real adversaries like this. Your security architectures are too much because the threat model is not there. And then you had DigiNotar and then you had Snowden. And it was like, okay, back off everyone. Our threat models were not strong enough, right? It's actually worse than we thought. And so that led to this whole movement to secure TLS, secure certificates. There was certificate transparency, which I'm sure is certificate pinning, all the stuff that your browsers now do to validate certificates and the whole security of the certificate ecosystem, which had been around since the 90s or even before was altered and it really happened and it got pushed out to users pretty quickly and it was like theoretical work in 2008 that by 2013 was like out there in the wild which is cool right that doesn't happen very often in security amidst all of this i wrote a grant i had to write a grant which was called a career award which is like this grant that you basically have to write in order to become a tenured computer science professor if you don't get it you have a difficulty getting tenure so it's like a must do so i had to write this grant and i was like what am i going to write about so i actually wrote about the risk single points of compromise, right? What is the risk that there are systems that we have these centralized authorities that have too much power that if they're breached, you get a sort of entire collapse of the system, which is what happened with DigiNotar. So I wrote that grant in 2013, it got accepted in 2014, and it basically funded my research up until for five years, my career award. And if you look at the award, it says the title is Centralized Authorities and in Internet Security. So it's all about like, how do you eliminate these risks in systems like DNS, BGP routing with RPKI in Bitcoin? We did a bunch of work on Bitcoin and Ethereum actually through this grant. So all of these different systems where you can build them so that the root of trust is not one thing, but it's multiple parties, or it's like a trust but verify situation where you maybe have a CA, but you also have some other system that validates the correctness of the CA. And it's really crazy because when I look at this grant and it's like, I'm like an old person because I'm still working on this stuff 10 years later, right? It's 2023 and I'm still working on this. But I took it to an extreme, which is like to start a company to basically bring this concept into cloud security, right? And so the idea in cloud security 
is if you look at cloud security and what gave the idea for this, the true idea came from was that we were working on something in the blockchain space and we have a hardware security module, HSM, right? We had a key inside an HSM. And if you're a cryptographer, like HSMs are really weird as a security component because it's like hard to understand what they actually do in terms of security. So the idea is pretty simple. There's a key inside and it doesn't come out ever. It's trapped inside. But you use that key to create signatures, right? So you send it a message and it gives you a signature, which is cool. So you don't get the key, you get the signature. The problem is that this thing that needs to make decisions on what's being signed is really dumb. Like it just, it's like you send it a message, it's okay, I'll sign it for you. So where's the brains and what's the real security issue about this HSM? It's what entity can tell the HSM what message to sign. So that's usually a server. The problem is, what is the security of the server? HSM is BS, right? What really matters is the security of the server. The security of the HSM is just a distraction. It's really the security of the server that's the issue. So we actually had built this system and we were looking at it and I was talking to Ethan, my co-founder about the security of this. And he's like, well, you know, the server has an SSH key. And I'm like, where's the SSH key? He's like, it's on my laptop and it's on Sebi's laptop. And it's on, and I was like, okay. <laughs> This doesn't sound very good. And it all came down to that SSH key. And I was like, wait a minute. So the root of all security is really who has access to the servers. That is the root. And I was at that moment, I was like, that is the root of everything. Who has access to the server that has access to the secure place where you're storing the keys? Um, and it's true about a vault too. Think about it. If you have a password vault or something, like something needs to talk to that password vault, that thing better be secure because if it's not, it can just pull passwords out for whatever it wants. So that whole idea is like really like the turtles all the way down part of the security story of cloud and data center infrastructure is that. And so that's what Bastion Zero started as. Like, how do we make sure we have a good secure way to access servers where it's not just like the laptop is sitting on, you know, Sebi's computer. I'm going to stop you here because this is the idea that came about Bastion Zero. This is not how it started. So this is the idea came and I'm wondering what you did next. Because it sounds like you guys, okay, this is a good idea. Let's make it startup. But you need to go and validate that somebody's going to go and buy this. Okay. So what happened was Ethan and I actually started a blockchain company in 2018 at the height of the blockchain ICO jungle. And we were not going to do an ICO. We did a venture-backed company. It was a very modest investment. It was like $1.5 million investment to start with. It was a pretty small, compared to what people were doing at that time, you had seed stage companies raising 12 million or doing $100 million ICOs. We were like at one and a half million. So it was a very small, modest start to a company. We built this blockchain company. And what we were doing was we were building, again, this notion of single point of compromise was very core to what we were doing. We were building a system for swapping currencies where you didn't have the currency swapper having control of the swap, right? So you wouldn't do the thing where I would put in one Bitcoin and you would put in $1 and the system would move them, right? The way you would do with a bank. So it was an idea of doing that where you'd have multiple research, multiple parties that would control the swaps. So we were building that and it was like a tool for settling cryptocurrency. And we are both technologists. We're not from financial services background. And honestly, the space was so complicated and the difficulties in building the company were more around financial services than technology. And after about two years, we realized we were like probably not good founders for this type of company. So it was like a cool idea. And I actually still get people who reach out to me today and ask me to give them feedback on their startup idea, which is basically the same idea that we had, but we weren't able to get off the ground. And so like after two years, what happened? It was March, 2020. I'm sure you remember what happened in March, 2020. 
And our company was not doing well. We had lost customers and partners as a result of the pandemic due to like market conditions changing. And we were standing there with like our hat in our hands. Nothing was working. And it was like, what do we do? What was interesting about that moment in time was we had $3 million in the bank and we had absolutely no business that was working at all. And so I remember it was the pandemic. We had started making sourdough bread. I was literally standing there in the kitchen slicing sourdough bread, right? This is like a March 2020 memory. And I was thinking like, okay, my next startup, I'm going to do this because I have my next startup idea and it's going to be like not in blockchain. It's going to be in security. I'm only going to sell to engineers. Everyone I talk to will be engineers and security people. Don't want to talk to financial services people anymore. And it's going to be great. And how am I going to do it? And I was just like, have to finish this company so I could start my next one. And I remember talking to one of my advisors and telling him this. And he's like, why don't you just start your next company now? And I was like, hmm. And so it took a kind of two weeks for Ethan and I to talk about this. And we decided we were starting our next company now. And that company is Bastion Zero. So that's how Bastion Zero started. Like we basically had that moment where it was like, okay, our next company, it's not going to be a blockchain company. It's not going to deal with financial services. It's not going to deal with regulation. I'm never going to talk to lawyers about whether what I'm doing is legal or not, because I don't want to, I don't want to have any of those questions in my life anymore. All I want to do is, and by the way, legal or not, as blockchain space, it's a very complicated from a regulatory perspective. So we were always doing regulatory analysis for everything we did, which was exhausting and very expensive. I didn't want to do any more regulatory analysis. I just wanted to be a technologist and build technology and sell to technologists and sell to a broad market that wasn't limited to a small industry that was very complicated. So that was the goal. The goal was like, let's do something and get out of blockchain, make it tech, make it cloud, make it technology and make it selling to engineers. And that's where it started. And then we had to figure out what we were actually doing. So that was like the next step. So I'm happy that you guys had money because many companies start didn't have money. So I'm happy you get an investor or, or the grant. I'm wondering, so you have now an idea, you have the money in a bank and you can pivot. What was the next step? Go hiring people, build it. We had the parameters. We had the, what our next startup should be. Our next startup was going to be a security startup where we sell to engineers in any industry. And it was going to use this concept of multiple routes of trust and like what we called at that time, decentralization and stuff like that. And I want to mention, by the way, if you're listening to this, I'm actually not really a blockchain person. Like I started in cryptography in 2005, 2004, which was about five years before the Bitcoin paper came out. Most of my research was in actually network security, like things like BGP, DNS, TLS. I think I mentioned that. I took this like detour into blockchain in around 2015 through 2019 where was like one of the things I was doing. And I kind of wanted to go back to like my old roots where I was like really mostly talking to people like network operators, people running big knocks and like the operations of the core internet. Like I wanted to be in that world. That's what I wanted for myself for the rest of my startup. And then it was like, what are we doing? So that was like a four month period in which it was, it was like the pandemic, it was May, it was hot. There was a mess. Everything was a mess. We were all at home and we were trying to figure out the idea. And this thing with the HSM was actually what triggered it because we had this HSM in our previous product. And I was just like, what's the right way to solve this problem? And in 2020, there was no right way to solve this problem of what do you do with the SSH keys? There was no right answer other than put it in a vault, which is just a cop out for a solution. You just put it in a vault, you pull it out of the vault. The key is already leaked to your laptop. You can't put it back because it's already come out of the vault. If I pull a key and I put it on my laptop and it's sitting on my laptop, 
I can't put it back in the vault. It's like now it's on my laptop, it's exposed. So there was really no good answer for how do you do secure access to servers in 2020. There were things called PAMs. Then there was a lot of like key rotation, very messy, clunky stuff that you use are really only in enterprises, like smaller businesses, like what we were, couldn't use tools like that. So there was an open market, we felt, for this infrastructure access problem. And that's how the company started. Those two pieces of we want to build something that really uses like our cryptographic knowledge and this like direction that we've been on for at that point, eight years or six, seven years. And then also like something that has a lot of white space in the market, which it felt that it did in 2020 when we started building. So we took four months and under like great pressure from our investors to provide a business plan, which is totally fair. Like you as an investor don't want to have a startup that like pivoted and doesn't know what they're doing, but that's what we were. And our investors were very patient and let us come up with an idea. And on July 15th, we did an investor presentation 2020. And that was like, I remember my head was exploding. I was so stressed. We had put together the business plan and we presented it to all the shareholders in the company. And my friends were like waiting for me to be done because I was so stressed about what they were going to say and were we going to be able to continue. And everybody got on board and we went on vacation for two weeks because we were exhausted. And then I came back and started building. That was August, 2020. That's the start. This is a great story. And I think it's a great beginning of the It was an epic moment. And one nice thing I just should mention is I don't want to make this sound like it's all about me because it's not. I mean, there were a lot of people involved in this. My co-founder, Ethan. Also, we met Mike Milano, who had just left his role at iBoss to my great luck in May of 2020. And I met him when he was like at home chilling. Uh, he had a planned exit from that role, which happened to coincide with the pandemic. So there he was with his, all his freedom and nowhere to go. And so we were at lockdown and we were talking a lot and he basically helped us figure out where we were going, what we were doing. And then he joined the company full-time in the fall. So it was like a lot of like lucky things. Their engineering team took like a pay cut. They stuck with us. They worked with us. We had engineers doing product interviews. We had engineers like reading competitive materials, they weren't writing code. Everyone was helping us figure this out. It was just a really messy period, but the team that was there was up for it. And I am really grateful because if they hadn't been, I don't know how we would have pulled that off. It wasn't just me and it wasn't just me and Ethan. It was like a lot of people who were just like, okay, we're in lockdown. We don't know what we're doing and we're going to figure it out. And we did. It was tough. I needed those two weeks off really badly. I still remember them. I was very tired. I'm wondering about the culture of the company right now. So you pivoted, you have a security company right now, you have some team, you're probably hiring some salespeople later on, but in what point you're thinking, okay, do I need a culture of the company or do I already have a culture is it built on top of it? Do I care about the culture or I just care about the technology? That's an interesting question. I think it is something that I've struggled with because I don't come from a corporate background and that's my weakness as a CEO. I'm coming from an academic background. And so I've never actually run a startup before or been at an executive level in a startup before. I was running a research lab. Running a research lab, it does involve managing people. It does involve managing budgets and projects and reporting and stuff. It actually involves sales in a way that sounds weird, but is true because anything you do in research You've got to convince the community that what you're doing that came out of your head is interesting and matters and deserves to be published, deserves to appear at the IETF, deserves to appear at conferences where there are network operators, right? And you're just like this little female professor that showed up out of nowhere, like, why should we listen to you? So there's a lot of that that I'm used to. A lot of, I'm used to being like an inventor, an innovator, this like annoying person that shows up with an idea and listen to me. I haven't thought of this. 
that's what I've been doing for 20 years. And so I think our team, our engineering team has that culture and is used to being asked to stretch and to do things that are difficult or unexpected, unclear, poorly defined. And so I think that is like really strong on the team. It's an interesting um, culture, you know, <laughs> very, very unique. I don't know if it's, but like a lot of my team, at least on the engineering side, they have come from my network of people that I know through Boston University. So my co-founder I met there and like a large fraction of my engineers actually came from there, took my classes. I kept in touch with them. I have one that, that I think she finished in 2015. I have one that finished in 2017. I have a couple that finished in 2019. I've two from 2019 or three. So anyway, it's it's that type of like community of people who really love InfoSec. A lot of these people have the engineering skills of like blockchain engineers, which is like writing crypto code, writing security code, doing protocol development, like those kind of specific skills that we have in abundance on our team at a unusual amount, I would say. We do now a lot of more normal things like API integrations and things like this. But at the very beginning, we were like doing a lot of protocol development and crypto stuff that, that our team was just implementing, which that's the easy part for us. How for does it team. reflect of you hiring new people right now? Because you need sales, you need marketing, you need new engineers, you need SDRs. They probably want to understand more about the company and more about the culture. Or you want to hire the people that you're current culture, whatever it is right now, but the way you build it will connect together. I think we look for people who really are excited about the technology and are like interested in communicating the way we're changing how you think about security. Because the issue is that with this type of company, certainly the market understands very clearly the need for secure access to production infrastructure, both for engineers and for things like CI/CD tools and anything that's going into your environments, like reprogramming your servers and doing things like that has to be secure. And then they know it needs to be secure. But what does secure mean? The word secure is like the most useless word because it means nothing. Really look for people who are curious about what that means and conveying that to the world. Like, this is what security should mean here. These are the zero trust guidelines from NIST and this is why they're not enough. This is why what we're doing is different come along with us on this ride as we like show the industry that this is possible. And that's what's fun about sales. For example, yesterday I had a sales call and it got canceled and I was so disappointed because I was so excited to sit down and sell the product and the idea to this team that I was supposed to meet. And I was like, oh my God, it took me like an hour to like, I'm so annoyed. I really wanted to do this. I had to get this conversation done. So Because I was like a team I was really excited to meet. So I like that's the part that I like. And that's what I look for in the sales team to have that excitement of conveying to them what we're doing is different. And that's really hard. And it's so super hard when you're a technical founder to hire the right sales team, hire the right marketing team, look for those qualities in people for being able to deal with the undefined and the non-formulaic part of being a startup, right? Because you can't just come and drop your playbook in and expect it to work in every startup you work in, right? Is it hard for you to let go? And I'll explain what I mean by this. You're a technical founder, you understand sales as well, and now you're hiring someone in a sales position and they need to sell your babies and need to make sure your baby is not ugly and you need to teach them how to do it And in one point, you need to trust them. They will do the selling without you because you're not going to be able to scale if you're going to be on every sales deal. I think we're working on that right now. We're not quite there yet to give the baby up completely. So yeah, we're in that process. It's, it is hard. I think it's hard for every founder. I think it's hard for every sales leader to deal with the founder as well. When you come into a company and you've got the founder selling, 
that's a weird situation to be in, right? When you're, you're most, most sales leaders don't go into to situations where the founder is still selling. The founder may be selling in a very precise way at a very specific point in the process where they come in and they come in like this for this aura of like coming in as the founder and then disappearing. And it's, oh, you met the founder. You're so lucky we brought the founder in front of you. We haven't gotten to that stage yet. We have in some deals, depending on the size of the deal, but in a lot of stages, I'm still there. And not just me, Mike Milano also, who started the selling with me from the very beginning. From the very, very beginning, we were doing all the selling together before we had salespeople. So both of us are still involved in the process and both of us are still there. So it is tricky. And it's, that's the stage that we're at, like figuring all of that out. This is the natural thing to happen at the stage that we're at. So yeah, it's really hard because as a technical founder, on one hand, you think I'm not a salesperson. I don't know how to sell. But at the same time, you say to yourself, actually, if I didn't know how to sell, there's no way this company would exist because why would have anyone given me money to do what I'm doing here if I couldn't sell it? And like we sold it, the non-salespeople sold it. So, so that's the weird balance that you have to live with. And it's been tricky. I think it's the hardest thing. One of the hardest things. If you can go back to the beginning, what would you change? What would you do differently when you started the company? I would have started a cybersecurity company at the beginning, not a blockchain company. I would have been like, I'm a cybersecurity person. I'm selling to engineers. I'm not dealing with regulators and I'm not dealing with financial services people. No and way. If you go back to the beginning of Bastion Zero, is there anything yeah. that you change in the way you did it? I think that pivot was so hard. Just, I don't know. Go back to the beginning is, I don't know that I could have changed anything. Do you know what I mean? It was March, 2020 when we decided to do this. Sometimes people ask me, why didn't you shut down that other company and start a new company? And I say to them, it was March, 2020. I'm a female computer science professor. And I'm going to go ask investors to give me money to start a new company because my last company has failed. Yeah, <laughs> how well fair. was that going to go for me? How well was that? How many people were going to believe that this was going to work? Be like, why are people looking at me sometimes? They're like, you're a professor. Why are you doing this? And so I was going to go and say, hey, everyone, I'm here and I want to start a new company. And it's a great idea. They'd be like, pat me on mm -hmm. the head and send me off. Right. Again. And it was March, 2022. So I was like, I don't feel like I could have changed anything at that time. And I'm actually like proud beyond words of what the team did at that time. And like people came, I had one engineer, his name is Chad. He joined us. He lives in Kansas. I met him through some online hiring thingy that was like popular at the early time of the pandemic. He joined, he just came in. He didn't meet any of us ever. We didn't meet him for two whole years. He just came in and just worked. So it's like everybody came in, not high salaries, sat down, worked. It was hard and they just did it and people didn't complain. And like, we ended up raising money a year later from Dell Technologies Capital to actually allow us to grow. And that was done under these really difficult lockdown, uncertain circumstances where I knew that our existing investors were not going to reinvest in the company. So I had to find a new way. If I didn't get a new lead investor, then there would be no more company. So it was like, definitely have to figure this out in the next year and a half. And the team did it in just an amazing way. We had all these like moments, you know, where things like collapsed and system went down, like we lost a prospect and, and people just kept going, bounced back. And I, I don't really regret any of that. Like the first year was really hard, but amazing. I just wanted to ask you about the dark side, but you already mentioned some of the dark side. The dark side happened. was, yeah. I've had so many, but like I, one of my advisors, like a, a cat with nine lives, like how many more lives do you have, Sharon? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask you a last question, and I think it's an interesting one for me, but also I'd really like to ask the founders because everybody's different. 
you're under tremendous stress. You always have a lot of different tasks and people and technology. And sometimes there's bad days, sometimes there's good days. So how do you cope with problems or with failures? When you have a really bad meeting or something happened to work, do you go meditate? Do you go for a run? Do you go for something else? What is helping you to get back to yourself? There are so many moments where something happens and I just, I will collapse and I'll lie down on the floor of my office and I'll just stay there for an hour. And I'm not going to just, I can't do this anymore. But that was too much, right? And there were like a couple moments like that, you know, and then I sit there for an hour and I'm like, oh, and then somehow I just get up and I'm like, okay, what am I doing next? I get up and I just do something else. I don't know what it is. I just get up and I just try to solve the problem. I don't know why I keep doing it. Like sometimes you you should just say, oh, this didn't work. Let's give up. And usually the reality is things are never as bad as they feel at the moment where something went wrong. Like you have a key employee and they leave. It's, oh God, like I can't just do this again. I can't take this person's job and do their job again. This is going to be horrible. I can't, I'm not going to do it. And then you get up an hour later and you're like, I'm going to keep going. I, like, I, I don't know how to explain why I keep doing that and just what keeps me going when things like that happen. I think the reality is that most of the time things are just not as bad as they seem. And if you can just get some perspective, like you sometimes think you're going like this and maybe you're going like that. And it's like, damn it. Like I thought I was finally like things were working and then you're like, okay what do I do? And you just keep going. So that's one thing. And I also, I think I have a very a good ability to turn off my brain at certain times. And so I have a very good ability to just compartmentalize. So if I'm doing something in my personal life, I'm pretty good at telling myself, like, don't think about the company right now because it's not helping you. So just stop. And so I can do that. The hard moments are really like in the weekday, during the workday, something goes wrong. And I'm like, oh, now what? But I think every founder has that. And I don't even know what it is that we all have inside us to just keep going and never give up. But that's, I don't know what it is. It's just there. Sharon, thank you very much. It was amazing. Your story is very interesting and definitely different than, than everybody I spoke for the last 50 episodes. So thank you for sharing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Everybody that's still listening, please continue listening. Please share the episodes and um, welcome to you for the next episode as well. Thank you, everyone.